and welcome to this special episode of the Technicast, a podcasting community open to all arts and humanities researchers. My name's Polly Hember, and together with Julian Klon, each month we invite different guests to speak with us about their research. Today we're doing something slightly different. As part of the annual Technic Congress, we've put together two special episodes that allow us to reflect on the Congress theme of Back to the Future, as well as to hopefully provide some time away from our screens. So, we kindly encourage you to listen to these next 40 minutes or so away from your computer, if you can. In this episode today, we have invited Alan Kilner-Johnson to reflect on the place of mindfulness meditation practices within the context of doctoral research, and to think about how we might be able to create better ways of supporting our different creative processes that allow us to be more present in the future. This fascinating talk lasts about 30 minutes or so, and after this, Alan will then lead us through a 10-minute guided meditation. For these 10 minutes of meditation, we suggest finding somewhere quiet where you can sit and listen to this. After that, we'll be back with a live recording of the question and answer session, which was held at the Congress, where Alan was interviewed by Emma Brodzinski. It's a truly wonderful conversation and touches on many of the themes that Alan's episode raises, so do stick around for that. Welcome to this special Technicast session on mindfulness, meditation, and research. I'm Dr. Alan Kilner-Johnson, Associate Dean and Senior Lecturer at the University of Surrey, where my research focuses on English literature and contemplative studies. I'm also a certified mindfulness meditation teacher and psychosynthesis coach, and I'm going to share with you today some of the latest research on the relationship between a mindfulness meditation practice and creativity and ultimately, what creativity means within the context of doctoral research. The theme of this technique, Congress, is back to the future, and I think that phrase is really resonant for us in a number of ways. After the past 18 months, when many of our lives seem to be on hold, we're now moving back into the present and working our way toward the future. So back to the future really seems to capture where our world is at the moment. But the phrase back to the future also seems to have a great deal to say about the nature of mindfulness meditation practice and something that I refer to as time orientation. Because as humans, we have a tendency to become caught in either the past or the future. Our past failures, regrets, disappointments, achievements might fill a really substantial role in our current lives. And likewise, future thoughts, planning, hopes, dreams, fears about what might come tomorrow or the next day or the day after can play an equally large role in our daily experience. What we seem to miss out on, though, is the experience of the now, that place between past and future. And what mindfulness enables us to do is bring greater awareness to the experience of the now and to train ourselves to develop a more expansive awareness of the present moment, not relying simply on memories of the past or plans for the future. Before we begin, I just want to invite you to to check in with yourself. How are you feeling right now? What emotions, thoughts, or sensations are you experiencing? Not trying to change any of them, but just simply recognizing what you're sitting with at the moment. What do you need to do to feel fully present for this presentation? 
Do you need to move to a more comfortable position? Put down your phone, drink a glass of water, support yourself with pillows or blankets. Use this opportunity now just to find yourself in a place of comfort. And as you do, begin connecting to the breath simply by breathing in for a count of three and breathing out for a count of five. Noticing how this gently regulates your nervous system. Mindfulness is a word that many of us have heard of before. It's very much a buzzword at the moment, and many of you might have practiced mindfulness. What is mindfulness, though? One of the best definitions comes from the American academic John Kabat-Zinn, who defines mindfulness as the awareness that emerges through paying attention on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally to the unfolding of experience, moment by moment. And there are a few really important parts of this definition. Mindfulness is about paying attention, but it's also about paying attention on purpose, paying attention on purpose in the present moment, and doing so non-judgmentally so that we can allow our experience of the now to unfold moment by moment. Mindfulness is by no means whatsoever a new practice. Even though we've heard a lot about it in recent years, it grows out of tradition stretching back thousands of years. And mindfulness as practiced today is influenced by a number of ancient texts, such as the Satipatthana Sutta and the Yoga Sutras. And these captured much older oral traditions about how individuals might be able to find a place of strength, stability, and serenity within themselves. But the term mindfulness really entered our consciousness during the late 1970s, when John Kabat-Zinn, a professor of medicine at the University of Massachusetts, founded the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program. And what Kabat-Zinn did was take away some of the, the more spiritual or religious aspects of these ancient traditions to create a more secular practice that could be shared by individuals from all backgrounds. What this also enabled academics and researchers to do was to study the impacts of mindfulness meditation practice. And in the years immediately after John Kabat-Zinn founded the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program, there were maybe one or two academic studies per year. But then by the turn of the 21st century, we were literally seeing hundreds of published academic studies on mindfulness meditation. In the year 2016, there were nearly 700 separate studies published on this work. What this research base shows us with really resonant clarity is that a regular mindfulness practice can do a number of really important things for us. The research has shown that it can decrease undesirable states, such as anxiety, depression, distress, and anger. It can increase positive states, such as joyfulness, gratitude, contentment, compassion, inspiration, creativity. And a regular mindfulness practice, the research has shown, can also improve our attention, our awareness, and crucially, for doctoral researchers, our ability to make connections between multiple different perspectives.
A concept that I rely upon quite regularly in my research and work is the cultural creatives, a phrase that was defined by Paul Ray and Sherry Ruth Anderson in their 2000 book, The Cultural Creatives. The cultural creatives are those who have a remit for thinking differently and seeing the world in a new way. So doctoral researchers, of course, are, are naturally defined as cultural creatives. What Ray and Anderson point out is that this group of people, the cultural creatives, are not defined by profession, age, gender, or race, but they're defined by a particular set of values, a particular way of looking at the world. So the cultural creatives then are what we refer to as a psychographic rather than a demographic. A psychographic refers to a collection of people who are united by a shared set of values and ideals. And there are a number of really significant values that cultural creatives share, which I very much see expressing themselves within the work and the lives of doctoral researchers. Cultural creatives very oftentimes commence from a place of holistic systems thinking. So cultural creatives are interested in finding new ways of looking at the world, finding new answers to new questions, by thinking about how systems work together in holistic totality. There's also a great sense of service that we see within the cultural creatives, a great desire to make their, their lives and the lives of those around them better, to contribute to society. Cultural creatives are very oftentimes also driven by value-led measures of success. And what that means is cultural creatives are not usually concerned with the, the measures of success that normally define our society, such as having the biggest car, the biggest house, or the fanciest holidays in the summer. Instead, cultural creatives are concerned with how they're expressing their values through their work and are measuring their success through the extent to which they are living and expressing their values. For cultural creatives, individuation and self-growth are a huge topic of concern. One of the great challenges that face the cultural creatives and that face doctoral researchers are a group of fallacies that I refer to as fallacies of scale calculation. Because the human mind is absolutely incredible, and a big part of our mind is taken over by trying to run things automatically for us. The mind takes up a huge amount of energy, so it will do anything that it can to find quick shortcuts. What this means is that the human mind isn't particularly good at being able to recognize and evaluate large scopes of ideas, information, or people. And there are a few really interesting fallacies of scale calculation which demonstrate this. One of them, which I find really interesting, is from a researcher called Scott Field, who identified something known as the friendship paradox. The friendship paradox is fascinating. It says that all of your friends will have more friends than you do. And this is a paradox, of course, because when we begin thinking about it, we think that logically that can't be the case. But ultimately, what the friendship paradox is referring to is a property of sampling. So really simply, if somebody has a lot of friends, more people are likely to be friends with them than if they have a smaller number of friends. 
The paradox then inheres in the fact that our human mind struggles to comprehend that because we think that we have a clear understanding of how networks operate and how we fit within those networks. Another fallacy of scale calculation that sits really neatly alongside the friendship paradox was defined by Robin Dunbar in a 1992 article in the Journal of Human Evolution. Dunbar recognized that the neocortex of the human is only able to perceive up to about 150 individuals. And once we surpass 150 individuals, our mind needs to find some shortcuts by grouping people together into groups, into tribes. This is referred to sometimes as the Dunbar number. So again, a fallacy of scale calculation, the human mind can only comprehend a certain number of individuals. And another really interesting one, which you might be familiar with, is something known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. This was identified by David Dunning and Justin Kruger right at the turn of the millennium in 1999. And Dunning and Kruger pointed out that humans have a tendency to overestimate their own abilities in relation to the abilities of others. So we have a tendency to think that we are better at what we do than other people working in the same field. All of these are fallacies of scale calculation, inabilities of the human mind to recognize large numbers of individuals or events simply because of the biological limitations of the neocortex. Humans have had tens of thousands of years to develop an understanding of how to work in groups and communities. And only in the past hundred years or so of modernity have we seen a really significant challenge to this. In our new radically hyper-connected world, the ability of the human mind to understand its place within systems is continuously challenged. This can lead to things such as imposter syndrome, to self-criticism, to self-sabotage, some of these endemic concerns that strike cultural creatives. Our inner saboteur, that voice of judgment within us, wants to keep us safe. It wants to protect us. But very oftentimes, it goes a little bit too far. It begins to overcorrect, and it begins to make us hypervigilant of the challenges that we might face in the world around us. And this is where mindfulness comes into play. A regular mindfulness practice enables us to begin to recognize these types of fallacies of scale calculation and begin to recognize and draw attention to the shortcuts that our mind attempts to take. There are a number of challenges that emerge through this type of automatic thinking that our mind undertakes. It's fast, of course, and our mind needs to move quickly in order to keep us safe in a, a really, really challenging environment. But these mental shortcuts don't necessarily examine all the options available at the time, and they don't necessarily take into account how we would best exist in the future. The mental shortcuts that our mind takes wants to keep us safe right now, in the moment, not concerned with how we might be doing into the future. These types of mental shortcuts can also be really difficult to change. We can become caught up in persistent mindsets that may have served us well in the past, but might not serve us well in the present 
or serve us well into the future. And this type of automatic thinking is also almost entirely unconscious. What mindfulness enables us to do then is to draw some of these automatic behaviors and thought processes into the conscious mind, into our awareness. Because the situations that we encounter in our lives, it might be challenging situations, it might be positive situations, it might be frustrating or upsetting situations. These external situations will always lead to some form of a reaction within us. A reaction that might be emotional, that might be based in thoughts, that might be somatic, that might be rooted in the physical body. So that movement from situation to reaction is very oftentimes automatic. Mindfulness enables us to almost short-circuit that automatic behavior, to recognize that following a situation, we have the choice of the reaction that we take. We have a choice in how we react, whether that's a positive situation or a challenging situation. Mindfulness has been shown to be an extremely effective component of developing a creative practice. This ability to recognize automatic behaviors and mindsets that might be limiting us is an absolutely essential component of developing our creative mind, our lateral thinking, and our ability as researchers. Because what the mindfulness practice does for us is it enables us to accept and recognize that everything is changing constantly. The research on mindfulness and creativity has pointed out a number of really, really significant benefits that we as cultural creatives and researchers can gain from a mindfulness practice. Mindfulness practice, the research shows, reduces the types of judgments and fears that might hinder the creative process. So when we are creating new knowledge, making an original contribution to our discipline, we will very oftentimes encounter fears and limiting beliefs about the extent to which we are able to do that. In order to be researchers who are able to make contributions to their discipline, we need to be able to recognize these types of automatic judgments and the fear created within our mind. Mindfulness also enables us to maintain focus over a period of time. So the creative process isn't merely about coming up with new ideas, about coming up with bigger and better solutions. The creative process is also about the follow-through, about the ability to develop the commitment to seeing the original insights through to culmination. So the research shows that a regular mindfulness practice enables us to maintain focus for longer periods of time. So we can see then how a mindfulness practice can both create new ideas, enable us to follow those ideas through to their ultimate culmination. A mindfulness practice also develops abilities to think holistically and to perceive patterns in ideas and in data. Now this is going to be absolutely essential in whatever discipline your research is in. I can't think of any discipline where advanced research isn't concerned with perceiving patterns, thinking about how ideas operate together, and then finding that small place where an intervention might be able to be made.
And perhaps most crucially, a committed mindfulness practice enables us to develop what some scholars call intentional mind wandering. So this type of frame of mind where we're able to sit down and allow our mind to productively wander, to mull over a particular idea or concern or question. These are the types of aha moments where we're really able to push research forward. What's so interesting then about the work that's been done on the relationship between mindfulness and creativity is that it shows that mindfulness supports all aspects of the creative process, from the ability to come up with new ideas to the ability to see those ideas put into practice, explored, experimented with, to, to the ability to ultimately have the resilience, the strength, the compassion, the stability to be able to support ourselves as researchers through all of the challenges that advanced research ultimately creates. The academic Robert Romney Cheyenne, in his really, really wonderful book, The Wounded Researcher, talks about the nature of research as research, the nature of searching for something, searching for part of ourselves. And I think it's really important for us as researchers to recognize how our fully embodied selves contribute to, and perhaps it's sometimes challenge, the research that we are undertaking. Romney Schein points out that we mustn't allow our research to act out of our own ego intentions, but instead recognize that research is a continual cycle of transformation and growth. So he suggests that we, we don't think of research as the way that we show off our brilliance, that we show off our ingenuity or our contribution to the field, but instead we reorientate ourselves to recognize that research is really research, a continual cycle of transformation both for our discipline and a continual cycle of transformation for us as researchers. As he says in The Wounded Researcher, and please do have a look at the book, it's really wonderful, he writes, the work wants something from the researcher as much as the researcher wants something from the work. When we think then about the research that we're undertaking, we might begin to consider what the research is asking from us. How are we growing and changing through our own research? What is our research teaching us? And how is that enabling a continual process of growth and unfolding of self? Developing a regular mindfulness practice enables us to see our role and identity as researchers in a holistic way, recognizing that we aren't simply cogs in the machine of the production of new knowledge. We are living, breathing individuals who bring to bear all aspects of ourself on the research. How do we begin practicing mindfulness meditation then? Some of you, I've no doubt, will have a regular mindfulness meditation practice. Some of you might have never heard of mindfulness before and maybe want to experience it in a little bit more depth. Mindfulness is a state of being rather than necessarily a goal or objective. So the practice of mindfulness is not an outcome that we are working toward, but it's a practice that we regularly 
commit to. And in my teaching, I describe two different forms of mindfulness. There is formal mindfulness and informal mindfulness. Formal mindfulness refers to closed-eye, seated meditations. And in fact, I'm going to have a recording for you of a formal mindfulness practice that you can try after you listen to this. Informal mindfulness is when we take that sense of being fully immersed in the present moment into our daily lives. So, for instance, an informal mindfulness practice might be mindfully doing the dishes, mindfully walking, mindfully taking a shower, mindfully having a conversation with somebody else. And when we're doing that regular, everyday, mundane activity, we are ensuring that we are staying fully present in what's happening now. If we're doing the washing up, we're not allowing our mind to wander to what we'll be doing in the evening or a concern that was with us from the day before. We're allowing our full experience to remain fully centered just on the actions that we're doing now. There's a really important relationship between formal mindfulness practice, that closed eye seated meditation, and informal mindfulness practice. Because really, it's the formal mindfulness practice that we do regularly that enables us to take a more mindful approach into our daily lives, being able to practice informal mindfulness more regularly. It's kind of like going to the gym. Formal practice is what builds up those mental muscles that enable us to be fully present, fully aware, fully engaged in whatever we are doing. So the goals of mindfulness are not to sit down and close your eyes for 20 minutes. The goals of mindfulness, if there is any, is to be able to experience fully every moment that we are living. Now, this is easier said than done. If this was easy, everyone would do it. And there are a number of different ways in which we can find support as we're developing a mindfulness practice. There are, of course, a lot of really, really great free resources online, things such as Insight Timer, Headspace, YouTube, loads of other apps and recordings that provide really, really great guided meditations for a formal mindfulness practice. Definitely take advantage of these and find which styles of mindfulness practice work best for you. But in addition to these recorded practices that you might do by yourself at home, it can also be really, really valuable to find yourself in a class or a group where you're able to practice mindfulness together with a teacher. Because in a group setting, when you're practicing mindfulness together under the support and guidance of a teacher, there's a process called inquiry that you'll go through where you have the opportunity to share and discuss with other participants on the course your experiences during your meditations. Because our experiences during a seated, formal, closed-eye meditation are entirely subjective. And very oftentimes, we don't have the right words to describe those experiences, because in many ways, a mindful awareness is something that is beyond words, that transcends our everyday form of consciousness. So by being in a group setting, you're able to hear from others, to learn about the experiences of others, and to develop a fuller, 
richer, more nuanced understanding of the experiences that you might encounter in your mindfulness practice. But most importantly, a mindfulness practice is called a practice because it's something that we have to work on regularly. It's not about ascending to some sort of enlightened state. It's about developing the ability to recognize when our mind has wandered and allow our mind to be guided back to our current present moment. Just like going to the gym, just like practicing a musical instrument, just like practicing any other art form, this is an ability that develops and grows over time. And mindfulness reminds us as well, and this is in John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, that we should approach this practice non-judgmentally, not judging ourselves if we aren't able to do it, not judging ourselves when our mind begins to wander. Because every time that our mind begins to wander in a formal closed eye practice, that gives us the opportunity to practice mindfulness. That gives us the ability to recognize where our mind has gone and to draw it back to the present moment. I want to let you know also about a free event that I have coming up just for PhD researchers called Mindful Living for PhD researchers. It's on the 1st of September from half six to eight British time, and I'm sure we'll be able to put a link to that in the show notes. And I really hope that I'll be able to see some of you there where we begin to think about how we as researchers can integrate a mindfulness practice into our daily lives. What does that actually look like to be a mindful researcher? I've also recorded for you a short 10-minute guided mindfulness practice, and I would really invite all of you to, to find a quiet space either right now or maybe later today or tomorrow to give that a try. If you are a regular mindfulness practitioner, there will be some new techniques, perhaps some new thoughts to be shared within that recording. And if you're completely new to mindfulness, you'll find a really supportive practice that will give you a, a taster of what a guided mindfulness practice might look like. Thank you so much. And I really hope that you find ways to begin to integrate a mindful awareness into your research. Because I've seen both from my own experience and from my research, just how important the awareness of and connection to the present moment is for us as researchers and how it supports us through the many challenges that we will encounter during our work. Poem Four Quartets, the American poet T.S. Eliot writes, but heard, half heard in the stillness, between two waves of the sea. We can think of our minds like an ocean, with the waves moving in and out, and with places of still and calm and silence between these waves. We can't get rid of the waves entirely, but we can allow our attention to focus on those spaces in between. To begin, find yourself 
in a comfortable seated position, either on the floor or on a chair, and simply allow your hands to rest wherever they are comfortable. Briefly check in now with your body, allowing your spine to fully extend, not stretching it or overextending it, but finding a position of stability in your spine, allowing your shoulders to relax down your back, down away from your ears, allowing your tongue to drop from the roof of your mouth, allowing all of the muscles around your eyes to gently relax as your eyes gently close. Notice now the breath as it moves in and out, not changing the breath in any way, but simply being aware of it. Where do you feel the movement of your breath? Do you feel it in your abdomen, in your chest? Do you feel the movement of air around your nostrils or mouth? Allow your attention now to center on the place in your body where you feel the breath moving in and out. With each inhale and exhale, feeling that orbit of the breath. Begin now to count the breath. Counting one, for each inhale and exhale. Continue now in your own time, not forcing the breath or changing it, but simply being present with the movement of the breath, the natural rise and fall. Counting the breath until you get to eight and then returning to one to begin again. If your mind wanders, all you need to do is recognize that your mind has wandered and gently and without judgment, return your attention to the last number carrying on with your counting of breath. As you first begin this practice, you might notice your mind wandering quite a lot. That's completely fine. The practice of mindfulness is the return. The return of attention, the return to the mindful now. Each time you recognize that your mind has begun to wander, simply bring it back.
over time, your mind may begin to slow down. It might not rush from idea to idea or sensation to sensation just as much as it usually does. These are the spaces between the waves on the ocean. These are the spaces of stillness, of silence, of calm. It's not a competition. There's nothing to do right and nothing to do wrong. When the mind wanders, simply come back to the breath. Beginning your counting again as many times as you need to. Notice any judgments that might be arising within you about whether you're doing this correctly or incorrectly. Instead, simply be present. There's nothing else to do, nothing else to worry about. For this moment, simply being fully present with the movement of breath in and out. As we begin to come to the end of this mindfulness practice, let go of any focus on the breath, let go of any counting, and begin to return your awareness to your physical body, beginning by feeling the places where your body touches the chair or the floor. Noticing the shape that your body fills and noticing any sensations that might be entering your body. Begin by bringing some gentle movements back into your physical body. Perhaps rotating the wrists or ankles, 
perhaps a gentle twist or stretch. And when you are ready, you can allow your eyes to open again, knowing that you are able to take this stillness, this silence between the waves with you into your daily life. so much for joining us here today um, we really hope that you enjoyed Alan's episode and that, um, that wonderful meditation and thinking about mindfulness and how we can create practices that support our well-being and our creativity so we're so so grateful to Alan for sharing his work with us for this special episode and for joining us here today so thanks so much and we're also so happy to have the brilliant Emma Brzezinski here as part of this conversation who will be leading and chairing this reflection and question and answer session so I'll just briefly give an introduction Emma is a, um, a senior lecturer in the department of drama dance and theatre at Royal Holloway and she is also a registered therapist and qualified coach. She has a wonderful podcast called The PhD Life Raft, which looks to support PhD students, which Alan has also appeared on. So you can go and listen to that if you like as well. Both Alan and Emma work within academia alongside their incredible work on mental health and well-being, which many technique students may already be familiar with, with Emma's work on breathing space and Alan's work on the Mindful Researcher Programme. So I feel like this conversation around mindfulness and creativity within the context of academia is so important to be having and it's why it's such a pleasure to have this space to reflect on this today um, what with all the challenges that the last year has brought on and also looking forward to what may come after the PhD which can look quite bleak at times with so much uncertainty and precarity so it's really it's really wonderful to have this idea of mindfulness um, focusing on the present moment um, that Alan speaks about so wonderfully um, and thinking about how we can support ourselves through our research and create better structures and practices for us and for our community so and I'd love to hand over to Emma now to lead this reflection and welcome any questions that listeners might have for Alan. Thank you so much Polly, welcome everybody. So this is an opportunity, this is a space the goals and opportunity having come out of being with Alan's gorgeous voice and his fantastic work um, and he talked about in the in the presentation about having that time to come back and debrief and be together and that's that's what we've we've got time to do now so probably about 20 minutes or so because we want to leave a, a, a just a space at the end so that we can kind of close and, and go into the next session so this is genuinely as as Alan says this kind of open invitation I'm here to help chair the session it's an opportunity for you to ask questions or feedback on what came up for you so any thoughts questions I can't see any hands and I can't it's it's, it's okay as well if you don't want to speak up that you can just put that into the chat well maybe as people are, I'm, I'm aware that people have probably just come out of this session and still landing so I, as I say, I have a whole list of questions. Some even highlighted because they're very important. So I'm going to ask, going to just go with my first, if that's all right, Alan. Yes, absolutely. As I've already confessed, I already, I always quiz in Alan on this stuff. So uh, this is, is a fantastic opportunity for me to get to ask some more. 
And I think I was really struck by the wounded researcher reference. And as I've gone, ordered it already. But this, this question that came up in terms of what is the research asking from us? And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting book by Robert Romney Cheyenne. It was published a number of years ago, quite quietly and quite privately. And it was only last year that Routledge put it out in a proper edition. And I think it's going to begin getting some more traction over the, over the coming months and years. Romney Shine comes from a psychotherapeutic background. So he's a psychoanalyst, um, academic and researcher. But his premise, I think, works really, really neatly with all arts and humanities research. The reminder that we're not solving a puzzle through our research. We're not solving problems. We think that we are. What we're actually doing as researchers is solving ourselves. And it's through that process of, of being rather than doing that, that he finds so much of the value in academic research. And it's a very, very poetic book. It, it uses the, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice to, to think about the nature of research and what we've lost and what we need to recover and what's been hidden and what's visible but, but, but forgotten. And I think there's so much in a commercialized world of higher education today that makes us forget about that. You know, when I think back to the earliest lyceums where philosophy was taught and shared and studied, the whole premise of teaching and learning philosophy in the classical tradition was as a practice of living. They didn't do it so they could get the degree or so they could get a certain job. They did it because they were embodying the act of living their philosophy. And in the arts and humanities, the subject areas covered by techne, I think that we've partially been encouraged to forget that, but also I think part of a deep, deep well within us is also consciously forgetting that. It's, it's a matter of risk taking, a willingness to, to be rather than simply to do, which can feel very risky to us in academia. But I do think that the opportunities are there for academic change to be made and to re-embody what research means in all disciplines and at all levels. Mm. And I think it always comes as a surprise to people, doesn't it? I think you're kind of coming into this work that actually you are getting to know yourself. Absolutely. The PhD process is, is an invitation and sometimes right up in your face, but there's this kind of this sense of a kind of entering into that. And that can be shocking and that can be troubling and difficult. So I'm, I'm kind of, I know that you have lots to offer in terms of supporting that. Was there, if it, is there anything particular that you might talk about in terms of ways of that discovery of self? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's an American writer called Mark Allen, who was a phrase that I learned years ago. Um, it's right around the time I was doing my PhD. It's really, really stuck with me. And the phrase is, do everything in an easy and relaxed manner in a healthy and positive way. Doing things in an easy and relaxed manner in a healthy and positive way. And when I was going through my PhD, um, increasingly, um, distant, misty pasts of time now, um, I was, um, my fees were paid for, but I, I needed to work a full-time job alongside it. I was teaching um, about three to four hours every semester at the university where I studied. So I had a lot on. And while doing my PhD as well, it was, it was intense. And I kept that, that particular phrase running through my mind. How can I do this in an easy and relaxed manner in a healthy and positive way? And what I realized that there, there were really a two-pronged approach here to this. I couldn't meditate my way out of an 80-hour work week. 
Um, in fact, at the time, it seemed like that was simply adding more onto it. So in order to create this work and to contribute in this way in an easy and relaxed manner in a healthy and positive way, I needed to begin by finding the systems that supported me. Um, number one, David Allen, Get Things Done method, the GTD method. There's a slim book. I think that, not that I'm encouraging piracy, but I think that you can get PDFs online, but you can also get used on Amazon. And he describes such a, a simple project management strategy for being able to just dump all of your ideas. Because what I found was there was a lot of stuff that was living rent-free in my mind. And all of the all of the stress, all of the worries, all of the plans, you know, it was just taking up too much headspace. The, the GTD method, super, super clear way to just get that stuff out of your mind and know that it's safe and parked there. And that was really, really good. That enabled me to do something in an easy and relaxed manner and healthy and positive way, because I knew that that was going to be safely there for when I needed it. And the other system I came across was the Pomodoro technique, which I'm sure many of you have heard about, which is again, Google this, there are apps. Um, you don't need any special app. You just need a kitchen timer for one quid a pound land to do it. But like the, the GTD method, it helped to uh, release unnecessary stuff from my mind. I didn't have to worry about what I was going to be doing when or what or what next and all of that. It, it created healthy boundaries in order to be able to do things in an easy and relaxed manner in a healthy and positive way. So that was the first prong, but also I can't and none of us can organize ourselves out of a stressful life. So those systems were one part of it. And the second part of it was that the daily regular practice of mindfulness. And people oftentimes ask, how, how often do you have to practice mindfulness in order to see benefits? And neuroscientists will have a million and one different answers for this. I'll, I'll say initially that the the general scientific consensus seems to be a regular practice of about 20 minutes a day, but that's simply because that's what those researchers studied. So they used that as their baseline. They said, what will happen if we get 100 people to meditate for 20 minutes a day? My advice tends to be that regularity and consistency is much more important than, than time. So a recognition of waking up in the morning, something as simple as maybe lighting a tea light for 30 seconds and looking at it, doing that every day, just to reconnect to where your day begins, that is going to be as effective as doing an hour of meditation one day a week. So fortunately, we're at the Arts and Humanities Conference. If we are at the Neuroscience Conference, I'm sure people would be saying, but have you read so-and-so who says it's 20 minutes a day? Those are the two prongs of support. We can't meditate ourselves out of stress and worry and anxiety, but we can't project manage ourselves out of that as well. It takes a solid baseline of project management and study skills, which universities are doing really, really good job at providing for PhD researchers now, but it also creates a regular practice of checking in. And in my experience and in those um, researchers that I've worked with, that combination seems to work well. It seems to provide that level of support that's needed. So useful. And I think this sense of emphasizing support and finding support, because I think there is there's still a mentality, I think, about I just need to do it, you know, I need to be able to just handle it all. And actually you need to be, well, supporting yourself and, and, and acknowledging that you can't do it. You can't do it. You don't, this is a new environment for you. This, this is new ways of being and actually it's a new project. So 
as you talked about it, in terms of project management skills, you need that. And part of the project management skills is this sense of your own resilience and building that for yourself and the, and the mindfulness then strands of that as a consistent foundation for going forward I love that I love that and then I don't want to hog you because that, that, there's a tendency there <laughs> are there any other thoughts or comments from people because I can, I can keep going people <laughs> anything that anybody wanted to comment or ask looks like two hands just popped up okay can i can flow is it flow hi yes yeah hi thank you so much alan but just thinking about the connections of yoga actually um obviously as part of this congress we've been doing yoga each morning um and that's really helped me kind of find a sense of routine and has kind of continued throughout my day feeling quite grounded i've definitely felt more productive and i'm sure there's crossovers with yoga and mindfulness i'd just be interested in here hearing more about that Absolutely, it's such a good question. And yoga is one of a of a series of of different mindful movement practices. Yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong. Part of my training is actually as a yoga teacher as well. I was trained in the Shivananda tradition. And what's interesting about the the developments of yoga and mindfulness is if, if we go back several thousand years to the time of the Yoga Sutras, they weren't separate. So the the ancient rishis practiced physical asana in order to prepare themselves for seated meditation. And the, the thing that surprises many people is the yoga sutras only have two lines on physical asana. We consider that to be the great historical heritage, the yogic tradition, but it's all about meditation and mindfulness. So about 2,500 years ago, those were very much the same. And then they began to grow apart and separate. And then as Zen began to grow up in China and then moving on to Japan, those similar types of traditions <clears throat> from the Vedic practices of ancient India were emerging there. So the, the tradition today that we speak of is mindfulness, uh, the, the, the standard mindfulness-based stress reduction program. It's almost always considered to be a direct descendant of Zen Buddhism. And John Kabat-Zinn removed all of the spiritual and religious connotations from it. However, um, this is where I get into interesting conversations with other mindfulness teachers because of my other training and my other qualifications and experience, I see how so many of these practices work together. So I, I teach something that I call integrative mindfulness. It brings yoga in, it brings the, the Zen material from John Kabat-Zinn in. And even if any of you have heard of transcendental meditation, which will charge you an absolute fortune, um to to learn a particular type of meditation that's from the yogic tradition of shivananda the maharishi just figured out how to make a lot of money by teaching people the shivananda approach so flow the the answer to that question is they work really really well together and even though they come from or they're seen to come from different historical traditions if we go back far enough we actually see that they are united and they they, they support one another so well and if yoga is your thing and that's the connection that you find, by all means do it. It's, it's mindfulness and movement. So enjoy that. Mm. Great, thank you. Thank you so much, Anna. And I think that sense of, of yeah, the, the, the way in which you integrate, you bring a range of um, reference and practice in a really gorgeous way. And exactly, because for some people that the, the uh, mindfulness sitting mindfulness which I know you talk about doesn't suit them and actually movement mindfulness is is the way for them absolutely 
Julian, I can see your hand too. Yes, thank you. Um, I was wondering, Alan, if you could sort of put the ideas of discovery of the self and the Congress theme back to the future um, into juxtaposition. And I know you do that in your in your presentation and you do that, you've done that already now, but I'm specifically interested in the idea of, of a goal, which is sort of future oriented, and then the idea of process versus vision, because process is very much in the present, whereas vision is in the future and how these two can sort of balance out. Absolutely. Yeah, that's entirely spot on. Yeah, I began with a few brief reflections on that at the, the beginning of the recording, but didn't go into it too much. Um, so I'm really, really glad that you, you brought it up here. So future planning, I always like to use the phrase future planning rather than goal setting. Mindfulness doesn't teach us to get rid of future planning. It doesn't teach us to let go of our hopes, our aspirations, our dreams, the unfolding of self. What it does encourage us to do is to reflect upon two things. To reflect, first of all, what is it that is underlying that goal for the future? So let's say that I, I have a goal that I want to buy a house. Yeah. So that's an easy enough goal that many people have. So mindfulness wouldn't say, no, you need to live in an impoverished state and you need to eat camp for the rest of your life and live an ascetic lifestyle. It asks you to reflect on what's coming from that. Is it that I want to have a material possession? Is it that I want to have a, a piece of capital to pass on to children? Or perhaps for me, at least, I'm speaking now from a personal experience, might that goal be a desire to have stability for family? So mindfulness encourages us to think about what's underneath our goals. and also encourages us to think about what is, is present in the moment for us. If our desire is this goal to have a house, to buy a house in the future, are we telling ourselves that we will never live in a happy present state until we purchase that house in the future? Are we delaying happiness and presence and awareness until we achieve that? So there's a really, really fine distinction there. And it's not about getting rid of goals. It's not about getting rid of future planning, but it's reflecting on what they're telling us about something that Roberto Saggioli, the psychoanalyst calls sub-personalities. So just to continue this example now, and to give another goal, when I was a PhD student, my goal was to be a, a permanent academic, to get a, a full-time lectureship. And within me, this had developed such important, massive, massive persona, creating what Sagioli refers to as a sub-personality, a part of us that becomes splintered off as a, as a protective or supportive or gratifying element of us. And in our sub-personalities, we can begin to channel our will and attention through that. We begin to live through just this one part of ourselves. So I spent a long time living through the sub-personality of wanting to have that permanent academic job. And it was a number of years after that when I realized that I was looking about at that in a really kind of unusual way. My aim and intention wasn't to be a, a permanent lecturer at a, a particular university. My aim and intention was to embody the presence of being a researcher, of being a teacher, of being a thinker, of being a community builder, of being a mentor and connector. That was who I was. That was my being and self. A, a professional portrayal of that, the way that that self interfaces with the world might be the role of being the academic because that's you know the type of skill sets that academics are required. 
but making that transition between a, a sub-personality that was living something out through me and then returning to who self actually was, who I was, seemed really, really crucial. What does that feel like to you, Julian? Does that, was that a far too esoteric response to your question or does it spark any additional thoughts as you, as you think through that? It definitely sparks additional thoughts. And I think yeah, analyzing your goals and how they, how they act on your present or what they say about your present wish is, is very interesting. But I'm, I mean, I was asking more because yesterday also we talked about utopias and commons and how these two things sort of as a general process might take away from a strategy or a long-term vision and maybe also have downsides in which we no longer sort of know where we go. And um, so I wonder if that's something that also applies on a personal level or if, and, and obviously I'm, everything you just said was sort of trying to contravene that so that you could bring in the goals, but more presently focused. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And the mention of utopias as well reminds me of that. It's the great historical joke. It's a place that can never exist. It's a place that seems too perfect precisely because it can never exist. And the extent to which we create utopias in our own minds necessarily that they don't exist and can't exist. I love that phrase uh, that you had about the unfolding of self, which I think links to links to the, that question too, in terms of that's what's going on in the PhD. The self is unfolding in a, in a gorgeous way. I'm aware of time, but I'm aware that we have time for one more question before we before we close. It looks like it's back to Julian. Is it? <laughs> I don't go. want to hog the floor if anyone else. No, there isn't anybody else, so please do. Okay, thank you. Um, it, this is more of a, so this is very much for me because I'm, I'm maybe not struggling, but not the biggest fan of digital spaces and I, where we're meeting on one right now, because the notion of presentness is obviously also spatial and physical. And you, in your meditations, you, you make us aware of our surroundings. So I wonder if, if you have any tips and also, I mean, we might be on the tail end of these virtual worlds and hopefully back to normal at some point soon, but we never know. So would you have any tips for sort of dealing with that digital nature of our existence at the moment? Absolutely. It's such an important time to question. The very first of several suggestions is that it's all right to feel exhausted, burnt out, um, upset, worried after spending the day on Zoom. So not beating ourselves up over that because humans have had tens of thousands of years to understand the, the incredibly subtle signals that we send to one another, whether it's micro movements, whether it's matters of gesture, tone of voice, things that cannot be captured in a two dimensional screen. So when our mind doesn't have all of that input any longer, it goes, it, it goes completely mad. And it has to work overtime trying to figure out what Emma's thinking or what Julian's thinking, because all of our minds have developed the ability to, to read quite a lot about the individual, which we can't do in the, um, in the digital perspective. So I think the first piece of advice from the mindful perspective is that it's all right to feel Zoom fatigue. It's also all right to share that with others because more people than we would sometimes expect will be feeling exactly the same type of thing. There's also, as we're moving now into to a reopening of society, 
lots of conversations about what it means to go back to the office or not go back to the office. And people are saying everyone in society needs to go back to the office or everyone needs to stay remotely again. I'm wondering if there isn't a third coordinate here, the possibility that we all work in different ways. And that for you, Julian, the, um, the desire to be back face to face is absolutely paramount. And that's something that you recognize that you will work and operate best in. I've spoken to many other researchers as well who say, oh, you know, sitting in the, the PhD room all day with other people, it's, you know, it's so loud. I've really enjoyed being able to, to be at home and just zoom in for talks and conferences. So I think that recognizing how we uniquely operate, recognizing that we don't necessarily have to operate in the same way that everyone else does and be kind to ourselves about that as well and share that information with our supervisors, with our colleagues about what we have discovered is best working strategies for us, then I think we can all find more productive ways into the future. Thank you so much, Alan. I'm aware we've got a couple of minutes now to to just close, I wonder if there's any thoughts or um, a moment reflection to, to finish this session. Oh, from me? Yeah, from, oh, from right. you. Is, is there anything to, to leave us with? <clears throat> um, something that I, I say very often um, on induction day when I welcome new PhD students to the University of Surrey, um, I say that a, a PhD will fundamentally break you apart piece by piece. It will then help you to build yourself up even stronger again. And that's such an important transformative process because you're taking knowledge and disciplinary practices that were once external to you and you are embodying them and they're becoming a part of you. It is a challenging process, but that's how the alchemy of, of the transformation of academia works. So when you recognize that those challenges are confronting you, let people know ask for help and support. There are people who have been on this journey before. You're not alone. You're not the only one feeling like that. We can't get rid of the, the challenges and difficulties because that's part of the transformation that PhD research creates. However, we do have lots of experience in helping you through that. So ask, speak, and let us know what we can do. Thank you so much, Alan. We hope you enjoyed this special episode of the Technicast today. A huge thanks to Alan for his very generous talk, sharing his incredibly important research on mindfulness and creativity and for leading us through the meditation practice. And to Emma for chairing this conversation and for her wonderful insight and questions. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do feel free to subscribe and to share. We'll have another episode thinking about the ways back to the future at the end of the month. If you would like to be featured on the podcast to share your research or your ideas around ways of working, please do get in touch with us at technicaster at gmail.com.